Hey everybody, Magnus here. I just wanted to give everybody sort of a warning. Basically what happened was there's a special guest who agreed to participate in this episode and uh, fuck it, 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 it's Scott Rifen. Anyway, uh, Scott Rifen from the Dinner for Geeks podcast agreed to join in on this episode with me and talk about Star Wars Shadows of the Empire, the uh, sort of a multimedia project that Lucasfilm did back in the 90s. And so there's some more details about that in the show, but that's just the basic, I don't know, introduction, right? The issue here is that something went horribly, catastrophically wrong with my audio in this show. I don't understand what happened. At least not completely. I don't know why it happened. And I've tried literally everything I can think of to fix it. And I can't. As I give you the fairer warning, I also want to set your expectations. I think it's still pretty listenable, but it did have an impact on the show in that my audio at, at certain portions is so soft that there is simply no way that I could score this episode fully the way that I intended to, right? What I originally wanted was to have the Shadows of the Empire score playing at least in certain parts of this episode, just playing in the background, right? Because we, we actually do talk about that at, at various points, and obviously the show itself is about Shadows of the Empire, and so it makes all the sense in the world, at least to me, to have that playing in the background. That's how I wanted to do it, and had I done that, it would have completely drowned out portions of my audio. Not all of it, but portions of it. And so... As a result, this episode is a lot quieter than I originally wanted it to be. Now, I think I, what ended up happening was I just put in a little bit of music towards the very end. But other than that, it's otherwise a pretty quiet episode. It's still listenable, all right? But it's, like I said, it's just not what I originally intended. Now, I had two options with this. I could either scrap the whole thing and start all over. By which I mean start all over with recording with Scott Rifen and basically redoing this episode literally from the ground up. That was one option. Another option was starting my Star Wars retrospective a little bit early, basically canceling this episode altogether, and starting my Star Wars, uh, sorry, uh, Smallville retrospective earlier than I originally intended, and basically doing things that way. Now, ultimately, what I decided was, you know, I made a promise to Scott that we were going to do this, and that has to count for something. And so, what I thought the best compromise would be would is, is just to release the episode as it is, just, you know, do what I can with the audio, my audio. His, his audio actually sounds just fine. It's my audio that has all the issues. But anyway, uh, basically release this episode as it is, and then stick with the original schedule of doing the Smallville retrospective with my next eighth episode. And so, 
right or wrong, that's the path I've chosen to take. And so that's that's what I've decided to do. Now, what I can tell all of you is that I'm going to take great care going forward to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. Ever. All right? There's a certain standard of quality that I expect of my show. It doesn't have to sound the absolute best on the internet. And believe me, I'll never be a candidate for that prize. But at the same time, I do have, like I said, an expectation of quality for anything that I do. That if you download something that I make and that I record, I edit, I mix, and then I release, it's going to sound a certain way. It's going to have a certain level of quality, and you can set your watch by it. It'll be perfect all the time. Every time. And that's not a guarantee that I that I can make about this particular show. And that's that. So I just ask for your indulgence on this one occasion. And with all assurances that nothing like this is ever going to happen again in the future, I'll do whatever is necessary to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again and that I'll be able to consistently meet the standards of quality that I've set for myself. And I think by this point, many of you actually kind of expect from me. Um, those first episodes I made notwithstanding that have kind of questionable audio. There came a point in this show's history where I think the production value was as good as anybody and better than most. And that's what I want to stick with going forward. And that's how things are going to be. So th on this one occasion, just bear with me. And rest assured, nothing like this will ever happen again. Thanks, and here's the show. That is a frustration for me as well, but it, it's kind of, you know, you sit back and you go, how much form do we impose on it? Yeah. And we always wind up erring against imposing any form on it. Now, when I, I will tell you that there are times when I go in and will literally take whole sections of the show and move them hmm. because it flows better with, with, you know, or we started something we didn't finish and we actually did pick it up later mm -hmm. and I'll grab that section and put it where it belongs. But I try not to do that too much, but there have been a number of times where I have done that. You know, I only just now started thinking about it, but man, your show must be a bitch to edit. <laughs> it takes, it takes about, I've got it down to about five to six hours of just raw editing. Fuck. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, I mean, I literally make between one and 200 cuts an episode. Fuck. Yeah, and it doesn't. Uh, hopefully, it, nobody realizes that when I'm doing it. So <laughs> well, I've never. Well, it, it, if it says anything, I honestly never even thought about it until now. Yeah. Oh, I cut the crap out of that show. Um. It, well, just to kind of put this in perspective, I did a um an episode. Let me go back. Yeah, here it is. I did a, a show with Chris Honeywell. He wanted to be called Arthur Ratnick for this particular show, but it was the uh, <laughs> the uh, Big Book of uh, Conspiracies, right? Mm -hmm. And I made literally one cut. To the whole thing, and that was what happened. I thought it was kind of funny at the time, so I told him this really kind of stupid story about this time that I went to a con, and everyone knows that there that there's always some kind of psycho at every con, right? It happens. Sure. And so, well, I luck of the draw, I bumped into the uh, resident psycho of the particular con that I was at, and man, this chick was fuck. She was gone, dude. She was. Uh, <laughs> There's not enough Thorazine in the entire world. And it, it and it was just so fucked up because what happened was, you know, she just kind of came up behind me and she's talking. Well, and it's just the nature of human communication. If you hear a voice over your shoulder, what do you do? 
Yeah, you turn around. Right, because you think someone's talking to you. Sure. And she's not. She's fucking talking to herself. She's telling herself jokes, and then she's laughing at them, right? And the bitch <laughs> is just fucking crazy, right? And I thought it was just this hilarious fucking story. And then I actually start, started listening back to it. And number one, I didn't tell the story very well, and maybe that's why he wasn't laughing all that much. And it was just the most <laughs> awkward thing I've ever heard in a podcast in my entire life. And so I want to say like five or ten minutes of this thing ended up getting cut. That is the biggest yeah. cut I've ever made to anything I've ever done. Other than that, I mean, you, so when you start talking about, you know, uh, 50 cuts, 100 cuts, 200, I'm like, my God, man, oh, that's yeah. got to be a pain in the ass. Well, you know, part of it is it's a, it's a really natural, it really is us sitting down having dinner. So there are a lot of just pauses mm -hmm. and mm. radio guy don't like dead air. Yeah. So dead air has gone. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of it, you know, a lot of the cuts are maybe a half or three quarters of a second, but then a lot of them are a minute and a half where we just go somewhere where we don't go or, or Jeff tells a joke that falls flat, which happens a lot. Or <laughs> I, I went on this epic, I thought it was epic 10 minute ran against Brian Michael Bendis. And as I kept going with it, I kept thinking, surely they'll all jump in at some point. Mm -hmm. And they didn't, they just all sat there. Right. And then we got done. I thought, well. I'm sure it'll still cut into something fine. And I went and listened to it. There, it it's not salvageable. Right. So yeah. It needs them on it. And they're just sitting there. So I went up cutting 10 minutes, you know, a 10 minute chunk. Actually, you know what? I originally was going to keep this to myself, but now I'm going to say something that I'm not sure you're going to like a whole lot. Uh -oh. Um, this is so far in the future. I don't even think I've got a release date for it. Of course I can't, pull up the fr okay here it comes way 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 in the future i've got my brian michael bendis appreciation series Please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Doctor Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trentus Magnus Donkey Punches Reality. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But not today, though. Nope. Today, I've got a very different subject to talk about. But before we even get into that, I've got a very special guest with me today, and many of you know him as the co-host of the Dinner for Geeks podcast, and, and so it's with great pleasure that I welcome Scott Rifen. How you doing, sir? Mr. Magnus, sir, Lord Magnus, thank you for allowing me into your kingdom. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. We've got plenty of room for more loyal subjects. So. <laughs> and thank you for the nice uh, the tribute as you introduced the episode. Yeah, I thought of all people, you probably appreciate that. So. 
I, I, you know, when I heard, I thought you were kidding. You said that 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 was what you called it. Uh, my show, Trentus Magnus, Donkey Punches Reality, and <laughs> I already forget which episode it was. And I thought you were kidding. And then, sure enough, it actually came up like towards the end of uh, that episode, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And he actually said this in public too. <laughs> so you just know there was somebody who was walking by in the background because you record in a restaurant, right? Oh yeah. And you, there was somebody who walked by in the background who's like, "Donkey Punch." <laughs> fuck are they talking about over there man <laughs> you wish you knew <laughs> i think i did it in the new one too i think i've done it's, i've done it a few times oh i haven't so, i'm only about like 20 or, or no i'm 20 minutes from the end of the new one yeah well is there's more so <laughs> yeah well 20 minutes yeah so <laughs> well today scott's uh helping me close out my eighth episode star wars discussions uh you see when I first put this show's format together, I decided basically a, a, that there would be six episodes of whatever, right? Whatever the hell I want to talk about, six episodes of that. One episode about the DC Paradox Press line of big books, and then one episode about Star Wars, after which I start all over again. Wash, rinse, repeat. Mm -hmm. It's never completely happy with that format, though. And obviously, I like it a lot less now that I'm on the Two True Freaks podcast network because they have a dedicated Star Wars show going each month. And so it just feels kind of wrong to have Star Wars as part of my ongoing format. And so, so you, were, you were trying to be an entire podcast network unto yourself is what you're saying. In a certain sense, yeah. And I honestly yeah. – I, I can say hand on heart, I was not thinking about Two True Freaks whenever I installed Star Wars. As part of all of this, you know, I, I swear on my mom's honor, that <laughs> honestly had nothing to do with it, right? But when, you know, bad enough that, you know, it's already so similar, but when you're sharing their network and you have something that's that similar to what they're doing, <laughs> yee, you know, so. Yeah. Um, the other reason, the other thing, though, that, that's going on here is that it, it turns out I just have less to say about Star Wars than I first thought. Whoa. Yeah, simple as that, really. And Whoa. Yeah, so for these reasons, uh, after this episode, Star Wars just isn't going to be part of my regular format anymore. And the next eighth episode that I do is going to be the first part of my Smallville retrospective, wherein I just look back and analyze Smallville and how it put Clark Kent... Through a, through a seriously, in my opinion, a seriously underrated character arc. Now, I'm not sure if that's your thing, Scott, but that's going to be what takes the Star Wars show's place in uh, future episodes. So you're on the, uh, the, the, the closing act of uh, the Star Wars stuff here for me. Awesome. Now, I will say this. I have like the first five seasons of Smallville on DVD. Right. Because I'm, I've always been interested in watching them, and you've kind of – I gave up during the first season because I thought the pilot was terrific. But five or six episodes into it, it was kind of seemed like it was the same Krypton Beast of the Week type thing. Mm -hmm. So I gave up Kryptonite Beast, you know, whatever, Kryptonite giving you powers for this, that, and the other. And so I kind of gave up. But you have kind of inspired me to go dig those things out of the closet. Well, if I may, uh, one of the things I've noticed about – certain shows, and I've heard that this is actually very true of X-Files, right? And mm. I guess uh, it's definitely true of Buffy. If you can make it, if you can just find a way to grit your teeth and make it through that first season of X-Files or Buffy, or in this case, Smallville, 
there is a phenomenal show waiting for you on the other side. Getting to that point means necessarily going through that first season, and that can be a little bit of a, well, let's face it, kind of a pain in the neck. But if you can do it, you know, I think that there's something there for you. Now, now bear in mind, considering what you and I were just talking about just a, just a little while ago, this is a kind of, especially in the first few seasons, it's, a, it's definitely a sort of youth-oriented show. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, it's now kind of an old youth-oriented <laughs> show. And so it'll be, it'll be, it won't quite be as hip as that Dawson's Creek thing I keep hearing the kids talk about. Oh yeah, yeah, no, not quite. So, <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, uh, point is, I think, look, I, I think that the show has just gotten picked on way too much, and so it's one of those things that, you know, people say it's it's just got shit writing and uh, and all this other stuff. I don't know what the hell show those people are watching because I see a fucking masterpiece here, dude. This is a Valentine. So, but that's all in the future, though. Uh, for right now, I should probably explain what uh, Scott and Scott and I are going to be talking about today. You see, I've been on the record for a long time now about not liking most of the Star Wars expanded universe. Time was I read all the novels pretty much as they came out but what i came to realize is is that i was buying the novels primarily off of the strength of the three or four truly good books that i'd read and more and more i just came to the conclusion that the expanded universe just wasn't for me uh, character names had shitloads of apostrophes and there was techno babble <laughs> coming out my ears but the characters in the books just didn't feel a whole lot like the characters as they were in the films. And the stories just rarely had the same kind of exhilarating, adventurous tone as the movies. Does that make sense? You know what? It is – the only difference between your story and my story is I don't find myself buying the novels on the strength of three or four good books. I find myself buying the novels on the strength of being a guy who's obsessed with story – and I have 30-plus years of buying this story, and so I try to buy every piece of the story that I can. And I certainly don't buy the books anymore out of love for them. In fact, having gone back and reread um, Shadows of the Empire here, I think – is have we done the reveal on that yet? Uh, no, but you just kind of <laughs> ruined it, so that's fine. Sorry about we, that. We knew from the start this was going to be a sort of informal show to begin with, right? So, hey, by, by all means, go ahead. Well, let me – here, if you want to cut this in, if you want to pull a dinner for geeks and make a lot of cuts, uh, I'll give you – and having read today's book again, that I think is the first time in probably three or four years I've even read a Star Wars novel. Now, mind you, I have every single one of them in hardcover, paperback, audio, all of it. Shit. Yeah. I mean it's it's a sickness. But it had gotten to the point – there are a couple of things. One, the character, the stories are just not exciting for the most part. Two, the way they explore the expanded universe – You know, when I was a kid and I had my play sets and I read the novels that were out at the time, the Brian Daly stuff, which I still love to oh, this day. Oh, those are awesome. Yeah, yeah those, those are, great. are some of my favorites. And – you know the the way that Archie Goodwin expanded the universe, and then later to have them go explore the universe in a completely different way and see things a completely different way from that, really has always been frustrating to me more than anything else. You know, I don't like the way they fill in a lot of the gaps. 
what I tended to, and it's kind of funny because what ended up really turning me off was that it felt like there there was a point in the expanded universe history, and maybe it was just when Bantam uh, took up the uh, license. I couldn't tell you. But there came a point when it felt like Star Wars was trying to be forced into this sort of science fiction-y type of mold. And I don't want to sound like a, like some kind of a pretentious cock whenever I say that that's really <laughs> not what Star Wars is. It's not really science fiction and the like the gritty kind of Star Trek sense of the uh, sense of it. It's basically a fairy tale set in outer space. It's, it's mixed with Old West and all this other stuff. And there are a lot of influences there. All of which got completely fucking subsumed the minute Bantam took over the license, and it, everything had to be this sort of weird, kind of uh, sci-fi, more gritty and grounded kind of kind of a thing. And I guess that makes a whole lot of sense in a story where we're talking about princesses and knights and all this other stuff. By all means, let's ground the <laughs> shit. You know. Well, I think a lot of it too is they literally they signed the license deal with their science fiction imprint. And then said, go get it. And I think those editors knew they're hard sci-fi authors. And that was – in the 90s, hard sci-fi was kind of a bigger thing in publishing. And I think those were the guys they, they knew they were – they had relationships with and those are the guys that were selling for them. So let's get them to write this Star Wars thing. And I think you're right. It's uh, – you know, it's uh, – Jack McDevitt's a buddy of mine and he's a hard sci-fi writer. And you know, while I enjoy hard sci-fi, I enjoy it when it's hard sci-fi and not when it's Star Wars. So I'm with you on that. But it's funny because he he's – if you've ever read any of his stuff, his stuff is all about exploring and it's about going to other worlds and finding other civilizations and cultures and figuring out what happened to them and piecing them together. And one of the publishers came to him one time and they said, hey, Jack McDevitt, you're a big science fiction guy. Yeah? Here, we'd like you to write some Terminator books. That actually fits, yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> you don't think so? He writes about the least violent stuff that you could possibly do. Here, write yeah, some Terminator. I, I guess that, that that is a yeah. Okay. <laughs> and he of course he of course said, you know what? I think I'll pass on this. Well, um, that's actually a, a a kind of a good segue actually into a, into a point that I wanted to make. The reason I think Shadows of the Empire is hmm. sort of a um, I'm trying to think of the best, I, I guess a good exception for all of that is that this wasn't something that was led by the publisher. Or for that matter, even by a writer. This was something that Lucasfilm itself took an active hand in developing. And because of that, I don't think it's a it's a coincidence that uh, this has a more Star Wars type of feel to it. <clears throat> Both in terms of character, the action set pieces, which I think are very movie friendly. Mm-hmm. And mostly, Shadows of the Empire just has, to me, everything a Star Wars story should have. And I should probably... And uh, put in at this point, what we're what we're going to lead off in, in discussing is Shadows of the Empire, the book written by Steve Perry. Now, to kind of go back in time a little bit, Shadows of the Empire is it's a lot more than just a novel. It's a sort of multimedia project, and the idea here is that Lucasfilm developed and promoted the Shadows of the Empire concept as though it was a movie, and they did everything that you would do with a movie, but fucking there's no movie. When Luke Skywalker was most vulnerable. This is a dangerous time for you. It is you and your abilities the Emperor wants. When a renegade hero became a friend in desperate need. And a dark villain faced his greatest challenge. 
Join me, and together we can rule the galaxy as father and son. When the Empire turned more and more to the forces of the underworld. Bounty hunters, we don't need that scum. <laughs> the underworld moved in to crush the Empire and the Rebellion in a single stroke. After the Empire Strikes Back and before Return of the Jedi, there was a time when heroes and villains alike lived in the shadows of the Empire. <laughs> My understanding of that is that they were prepping the special editions and episode one and moving on with the prequels, and they got delayed. The prequels were supposed to hit in 98 and they weren't able to do that. So they got off schedule and they said, well, we've got a product pipeline that all of our licensors have to fill. And it's, you know, it's Nintendo, it's Bantam, it's, uh, it's Hasbro slash Kenner. It's all these guys and they're looking for a project. Let's give them all a project that they can all, and Dark Horse, give them all a project they can put out there and kind of, it's, it's like a movie, but we don't have a movie yet. Right. And I, <coughs> excuse me, and I wouldn't be surprised if, that was actually maybe the real, like the e-true Hollywood story of how Shadows of the Empire came about. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't surprise me a bit. What I will say, though, is that no matter what the true genesis of the thing was, to me, this is the most authentic Star Wars book that I have ever read. Including novelizations, I might add. And so there's a novel, there's a video game, there's a comic adaptation, and a bunch of other shit, too. But... As I said before, no film. Shadows no. of the Empire was given uh, a marketing push along the lines of what you might expect had a film came uh, had a film come out for I think the reason Scott just mentioned, but there was no Shadows of the Empire film. And I'll I'll be honest, Scott. I'd, like to this day, this this is my favorite <laughs> Star Wars book. Now, where are no. you on that? I I don't disagree with you. I I like Kevin J. Anderson's Jedi Academy trilogy pretty well, but <laughs> I told you we weren't going to agree on everything. Um, but uh, what I like about this book, and in rereading it for this podcast, it really you know I wondered because when it first came out, I guess it was 1996. I wondered. It's been that long since I've read it. I wonder if I'll feel the same way about it when I go back and reread it. And let me tell you something, Magnus. Every bit of it came roaring back. And you know what? It, isolating it into little bits. One, it deals with the big three. And not all of the novels give equal shrift to the big three. It is respectful of the supporting cast. Chewbacca, C-3PO, R2-D2 all have things to do, whereas a lot of times they're just kind of furniture in the other books. Um, it, it, it gives an added dimension to Darth Vader and the Emperor's relationship that really plays off of some of the things that were said at the end of Empire Strikes Back and lead into some of the things that, that were said at the end of Return of the Jedi. But there's one other element that people don't tend to, I think, think about when they appreciate Shadows of the Empire, and that is one of the things that makes it so great is the pace. Two words, quick cuts, short scenes. Cut to another short scene. Cut to another short scene. Just like it would be in the movies. We don't have to spend 50 pages describing how a room looks and all the furniture. Um, there was a uh, Roger McBride Allen, one of the solo Corellia books. Oh, yeah. Which is one of those books that when you read it, you know, you know that he pitched one book and they said, can you squeeze three out of it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a scene where he's in a, a shuttle or a satellite over Corellia, and it's spinning out of control. And Alan literally spends nine pages describing how the satellite is spinning. Don't yeah, give me that. And there's another one, and maybe it's the same thing, but there was um, – I was actually going to skip Roger McBride Allen because I don't want to puke in my mouth, but there was, <laughs> I want to say it was the uh, the first chapter of that Corellia trilogy where he spends a lot of pages, and maybe this is the same thing, I don't know, but there's a lot of pages where he's, he, he's talking about a ship that's about to crash, and it goes on for like at least five pages that I can swear to. Now – to me, it, hmm. a, a ship crashing—that's the that. If there's ever anything that you want to just power your way through, yes. Number one, because what it would take to make a spaceship crash, none of us can fucking relate to. Because I don't know about you, I've never <laughs> fucking flown a spaceship before. No. Now I've been in a lot of car crashes, and I'm here to tell you something. That happens out of fucking nowhere, dude. I mean, you're driving along, minding your own goddamn business, and next thing you know, some some guy just bashes into you, right? But I digress. <laughs> But I digress. <laughs> yeah. that, to me, that's about the way that it should happen. And, yeah. You know, and he spends like five freaking pages. And, yeah, so I completely agree with you. It's funny that you have the exact same criticism. Yeah, it just – and there are a lot of those books, particularly if you look at those trilogies where there's another there's another science fiction trope that drives me crazy, and that is the, the book where we're just walking. And we're, we're walking somewhere, and then things happen to us along the way, but we're just walking. And there's just there's nothing that really propels that. You're just walking. You know, you, you're trying to get somewhere, sure, but you're walking. And the uh, Black Fleet Crisis was that. One of the storylines was just literally they're walking through a ship for three books. They're just walking. Oh, and in this room, oh look what we found. Well, we'll just keep walking. And to make it worse, there were three different storylines, and they intercut amongst all three of them in books one and three, but in book two, they isolated each storyline and gave it its own third of the book. Oh. So, so for a third of the book, you're reading about these characters walking through a ship. Oh, <laughs> and you know, like the hell of it is like, these are like creative people yeah. and they do this for a living. Yeah. How? I don't know. You tell me. I don't get it. Well, so, Okay, so, but I guess to try to steer us a little bit more back on Sorry. topic here, um, what I thought we could do is I I um, didn't want to have to summarize the book, and by this I mean write my own summary for the book, so luckily for me I found one online at starwars.wikia.com, okay. so what I'm going to do is just go ahead and, and just run through this, uh, it's only a few paragraphs long, this very just brief summary, and then we can actually kind of get into the blood and guts of this thing, but... Okay. <clears throat> Summary is as follows. Princess Leia organizes a rescue team to save a carbonite frozen Han Solo from the hands of the infamous bounty hunter known as Boba Fett, try saying that five times fast, who's taking Han to the ruthless job of the hut. The mission is, success is unsuccessful, and Fett gets away with Han. Meanwhile, Darth Vader is hunting down his son, Luke Skywalker, for those who haven't seen The Empire Strikes Back, so that he can turn him over to the dark side of the Force. However... The leader of the, of, of the Black Sun criminal syndicate, Prince Shizor, is trying to kill Luke. Both Vader and Shizor are in Emperor Palpatine's good graces, and Shizor even pretends that he's looking to have Luke become a member of the Galactic Empire, just as Vader is trying to do. And even though the latter Sith is more aware of the Prince's plans, Palpatine forces Vader to trust in Shizor. In order to lure Luke... 
lure Luke. I shall repeat that. Lure Luke over so that he can kill him. <laughs> Shizor has Princess Leia kidnapped. Luke, Lando Calrissian, and Dash Rendar sneak into Shizor's palace from underground to rescue Leia. And this all leads to a, into a conflict that ultimately results in the palace's destruction. Luke, Leia, Lando, and Dash all escape, but so does Shizor. Eventually, a battle plays over Imperial Center where Shizor is killed in the destruction of his own skyhook. The novel ends as Luke and Leia plan to rescue Han from Jabba the Hutt's clutches, leading into Star Wars Episode VI, Return of the Jedi. So, that ends the summary. And, as I've said before, I should I, I, I want to start just by emphasizing how much I love Shadows of the Empire and how much this feels like Star Wars to me. You know, the, the characters, the action uh, sequences, everything feels right. But whenever I say that, what I don't mean is that this somehow feels like canon to me. I don't really see how, how events as big as what we see in uh, Shadows of the Empire really could have happened between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi without there having been some kind of a reference to it. You know, gee, Lando, we haven't been in shit this thick since we blew up Shizor's palace. And that was fucked up, wasn't it? Obviously nothing like that happened because nothing nothing like Shadows of the Empire existed at the time. So when I say that this feels right, I don't mean that in the sense that, you know, I consider this part of the movie canon. I don't. But I, it, that's one of those things I'm just willing to kind of put aside because the story feels so much like Star Wars to me, and that's kind of how I'm coming at it. Does that make sense? It does make sense to me. There's a good place to cut. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> yeah I like it. You're very edit yeah. I like this. <laughs> it does make sense to me in that it, it does feel like a movie, but I, I think you may be a little harsh in your criticism of their being able to reference the events of the story because it's very... I don't know. It's very screenwriter class for them to go, well, now we've got to make reference to the thing that happened before. I mean, if they're in the middle of a battle and everything, they're not going to sit back and, and reference everything that happened. I'm okay with that. Hmm. All right. But, well, I, I just, I, I meant this from the point of view of it not really being canonical, but you know, like I hmm. said, I mean, I, you know what, you're absolutely right in, in, in that point. Um, but yeah, the field again, it, to me, a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's pacing, there's action, there are space battles. There's intrigue. It moves, moves, moves. And so few of these books move. Well, and, and now, of course, I didn't actually make a note of it in the book. But to me, a, a, a trap that a lot, of, a lot of writers sort of fall into is whenever they write about the Force and what that feels like and everything else, they have a way of either over-describing it or under-describing it or putting it in just these really just kind of fucking weird terms yeah. and, um, and descriptions and everything. And Steve Perry, whether it's by luck or by design, avoids that. And so whenever he uh, has Luke or anybody really reflect upon the Force, they're, they're not talking about some... It, it, they, it just is. Yeah, it, and they're not—they're not trying to describe some kind of Rube Goldberg invention. <laughs> you almost get the idea that there's—they have the same sensory perception that we do, but more so. And, sure. And that to me is—is is, there? 
as obvious as that is, fucking nobody ever tries to do it. You know, Luke stretched out with his four with the force, and then you know, next thing you know, he's he's diddling this this you know this guy's dick from across the room, or just whatever it is that he's doing. I remember that book. Really? Yeah, it sounds like slash fiction. <laughs> That's right. It's Kirk's. Uh, was it uh, Luke slash Chewy fiction? I think that was actually. But <laughs> the um, yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I, again, it's, Zahn drove me nuts, and I, we'll probably disagree on that too. But no, we several we, things. No, <laughs> we are on the same page when it comes okay. to Zahn. <laughs> okay, Zahn drove me nuts. One of the things he did probably three times in that book was have Luke. Uh, get into a bind and get out of it by throwing his lightsaber and then using the force to spin it around and then come back to him. And there was this whole description of how he reached out with it and grabbed it with the force. And yeah, the thing is the force it just is and spend less time telling me about it and more time telling me who's using it. And I'm good there. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, and I am too. Now, the one there is actually sort of a matrixy moment in uh, in the book where Luke. How do you pronounce the bodyguard's name? Is that is that Guri or? Oh, I pronounced it as Guri. Guri. All right. But I don't um, know where he's basically basically uh, this life model decoy type of thing. Yeah. For uh, Prince Shizor, she's basically uh, his, uh, his his bodyguard, and you know she's set up early on in the book to be. One of the most deadly weapons in the entire in the entire galaxy, far far away, right? Yes. And so obviously, she knows what her reputation is, and she wants to go up against a full fledged Jedi Knight because that's one hell of a notch to have on your belt, right? Mm-hmm. Comes she goes looking for Luke, and usually stuff like this. I mean, it's just written in just such cinematic language that it's not hard. Number one, you don't have to worry or wonder about what Steve Perry was smoking when he wrote it. And number two, <laughs> it really does – you can actually very easily picture this in your mind's eye that Luke is basically moving at normal speed, but his perceptions are now so fast and so yeah. sped up by his – I shouldn't say mastery of the Force, but he's, I guess, sort of starting no, to in fact, his puberty of the Force. Yeah, no, that's and that's exactly what starts to happen. You start to see him levitate things, whereas he, eh, he really didn't do things unless Yoda told him to, and he could only barely do it then. And now you're starting to see him kind of take control of that kind of thing. And yeah, yeah, and I just, I really, that, again, it's just, it's one of those moments that, <clears throat> and actually, you know what? I mean, maybe we're, maybe we run the risk of going maybe a little too far off topic here. But whenever you said before, it's one of those things that it just is, and it's just kind of sort of a natural extension of the existing senses that we all ha- or most of us have. Yeah. Unless you're, I guess, impaired in some way. <laughs> I mean, um, we've all been in a situation, whether it's a car crash or whatever else, where you're, you can almost see things happen slower than they're really happening. Yep. And Luke had now all all he can really do now, the difference between him and us is that he can turn that on and turn it off like a light switch. Yep. That's the difference. And he doesn't I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, uh Perry doesn't he he doesn't try to basically write Luke as some sort of all-powerful super god or something like that and put things into terms that are just completely foreign and un- and unfamiliar to us he never dehumanizes luke or the force yep. or anyone else who uses the force or or not just dehumanize but take it the other way and superhumanizes right i mean right. sometimes they're just too great they're too powerful right and now i'm blanking on which one it was but there was um one 
book, and it, what, I don't think it was Dark Saber, but it was some book where um, basically uh, Luke had the uh, ability to – I don't know. It's like he, he almost had like this godlike control over all reality where he could, I don't know, just manipulate reality at will. And you know that doesn't really match up with Han Solo dismissing all of this Jedi stuff as simple tricks and nonsense. Well, if you have yeah. that kind of fucking control over reality – you can call that anything you want, but not simple tricks and nonsense, you know? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, the, the other aspect of the Guri, her wanting to confront Luke, and I don't know how far down this road you want to go, because I know this is not this is not one of your notes, but I'm going to throw this at you and see what you think. That is a, that's a situation where when she wants to take on a real Jedi that could become a cliche in a big way, and she could be very cardboard in, well, I'm built and, you know, I'm a robot and I want to take on the best to see if I'm the best. And it, it, it could be done poorly so many ways. But to me, it almost reads like Pinocchio. You know, she really is trying to, throughout this thing, I read a lot of insecurity in her, even though she is physically beautiful and very lethal. Uh, I still read, you know, she's she's that one who's not quite human and she doesn't quite get what it is, but she wants to get what it is. And so that that element in her desire to have the, the confrontation with Luke, to me, just steps it up a notch. And, you know, actually, to be honest, I don't think I would have put it – I don't think I would have put it in in, uh, in in those terms exactly. But that's actually, I think, maybe the perfect way to describe it. So kudos <laughs> to you. Good job. <laughs> uh, so uh, now what now what all notes do you have on, um, on uh, your side here? About the novel itself? Or, or anything else. I mean, I'm you know I could keep going about the novel, but if you need to move on, that's fine. <laughs> no, I'm I'm. It's your show. It's your world. I'm I've got some notes here, but I was just going to kind of go where you go and throw my stuff in there where I could. All right. Well, um, basically, uh, that was about as much as I had to say about the novel, other than okay. to say that this would actually, I think, make a great movie, canonical yep. or not. This would be a great movie, whether it's done as I, I think probably the only way you could do it these days is to do it as a sort of a CGI or motion capture sort of a thing. Well, CGI. Yep. yep. I think I'm done with motion capture, but CGI, right? <laughs> so motion capture just has an element of unreality to it that an animator can actually contribute the humanity to it better, I think. Right. Um, but yeah, and let me tell you what else it does, because I don't think we're probably going to cover this a whole lot because it's really not my forte either. But what the novel itself does is it sets up and and maybe Steve Perry doesn't get all the credit for this. Maybe the production team at Lucasfilm does. But it sets up a great toy line. Because it gives <laughs> oh. you it gives you the familiar mm-hmm. while putting small twists on it that make you want it. Uh, you know, they speeder bikes are popular. They've got the swoop gangs. And the swoop gangs are are kind of Harley versions of speeder bikes. Right. Who doesn't like that? How cool is that? Um, you've got Luke in his the, – the outfit they put him on in the poster, it's not quite his Jedi outfit, but it's not quite his Empire outfit. It's something in the middle. Uh, you've got Chewbacca with his disguise where he spikes his hair and puts on mascara and dyes part of his fur and puts an eye patch on. That's, again, Chewbacca, familiar character, but there's some cool new twist to him. And then you've just got Darth Vader, and you never have to really put a twist on Darth Vader. You know, actually, it's and it's kind of funny. I didn't even think 
to even talk about Vader so much at, here, but <laughs> one of the things, though, that actually really fucking works for me is how you never really get in inside of Vader's head too much, at least in the original trilogy. Now, Mm-mm. the prequels, that's... Well, whatever. But yeah. uh, at least with the original trilogy, you don't really get inside his head too much. And you, but you, you spend a quite a bit of time, uh, quite a bit of time there in uh, in Shadows of the Empire, and the voice of it, again, it just feels absolutely authentic. He's not too flowery, but at the nope. same time, he's not some towering brute either. I mean, he's not just the monster in the closet. He's there, there's there's a real living, breathing person here, and that person is Darth Vader. It just feels so. Yeah, no, you, it, you're right. The voice of it is is right on with what you see really in Empire Strikes Back. And using that as kind of the springboard into this story, you're very comfortable with that being the same guy. You know, in Star Wars, you got little glimpses of him. You know, one of the funny things, and uh, I'm a guy who'll go out and defend the prequels because I do enjoy them. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that drove me crazy when it came out was people, well, you know, we didn't find out enough about Darth Maul. Darth Maul wasn't even in 10 minutes of this movie. I heard that said by several people criticizing it at the time. Yeah. Darth Maul wasn't even in 10 minutes, and we didn't get his backstory, which backstory is a whole different thing. Right. But uh, the criticism, he's not even in 10 minutes of this movie, kind of drove me nuts. So I went and took a stopwatch, and I literally watched Star Wars one day and started and stopped the stopwatch every time Darth Vader was on screen. Right. He is not in 10 minutes of that film. You're but kidding. He, no, but he is the character everybody, you know, 1977, he's the character everybody was talking about when they walked out of that theater. He is not in 10 minutes of film, so you don't really get to know him that much. And in Empire, you spend a lot more time with him, probably because everybody talked about him after the first film. And he's that guy. The guy in this novel is the guy that you saw in Empire. He's that same guy. It's, it's, there's very little difference between this, the, the two characters that you see portrayed. You know, I, I didn't know that. Well, you know, and actually, it's funny. I've actually got a, uh, I've got a, a criticism of all that, but at the same time, I've also got a kind of a defense too. My, <laughs> okay. okay, Darth Vader was not dispatched at the end of, uh, of uh, Star Wars, right? It's made pretty clear he escapes the destruction of the Death Star. Plainly, so, yes. Um, you know the fact that you know he's obviously going to be going on to bigger and better things is known. Whereas in the Phantom Menace, Darth Maul is, and I don't care what the fucking Clone Wars say, Darth Maul died on <laughs> Naboo that day. And to me, that's mm-hmm. that's the end of his story, period, end of story, right? Okay. But, so, you know, for someone to come along and say that, you know, he didn't even have all that much development and everything... I guess maybe you know in their world that's that's kind of a a, a decent criticism, but he's not really there to be developed. He's there to be a no. threat. Yeah, he's, it's nobody in the '60s went. You know that that odd job character. I like how he throws the hat, but what were his parents like? <laughs> you know, what was his childhood like? Do you think? And nobody does that. It's just odd job is a guy who's just a badass and he's lethal, and Bond's got to take him on. Right, and you know, maybe we're, and it just kind of feels like that's just sort of this armchair writer type of criticism. Where, look, if they were writing some kind of deep, nuanced, textured, and layered character piece, and Darth Maul was basically in there for the amount of time that he's in there, 
Yeah, you got a point, you know? Um, yeah. If he was supposed to be a, a character around which the entire plot turned, him and his motivations, again, you maybe you've got a point there, but... Yeah, you know, he's there for he's there for what he needs to do. He does what he needs to do. He doesn't have any more screen time than is absolutely necessary. Look, I can I, I'm perfectly willing to tear the pre well not I don't know if I want to tear them apart necessarily, but I'm willing to to listen to criticisms about the prequels, but it just kind of feels like, you know, Darth Maul plays about as big a role in episode 1 as Boba Fett played in Empire. And I don't hear anyone <laughs> well, Kind of, I, I, you know, this cannot, I cannot be the first person to point this out, and no one seems to have a, all that big a problem with that. I mean, so what's the deal? What are we talking about here, you know? Yeah, people have a bigger problem with Boba Fett's role in Jedi than they do with his role in Empire. That's true. Yeah, uh, but yeah I don't know, but I, I heard that criticism a lot, and so I went and ran the – like I said, I ran the stopwatch on it. But the thing about it is Empire, you spend a lot of time with Darth Vader. You, if, if this novel had been written and there was no Empire Strikes Back, which, which really is not possible, but just go with me on this. The Darth Vader that you see in the novel, you really don't have a lot to base it on because you don't know him well enough from the first film. By the time you get to Empire, and then you've seen him again in Jedi, but because most people are not going to come into this between those two movies, they're going to have seen all the films. Uh, it's consistent with the product that's up there. It's consistent with that Darth Vader that you spent a lot of time with in Empire, and you spend a good bit of time with in Jedi. So I just I think bang up job there. Did you ever read any of the comics? Were you involved in the comics at all? I've never really been uh, hip to Star Wars comics much to begin with, but. No, I never read these. For sure, I never read these these comics. It's an interesting thing because you know we talk about this being a multimedia project, and one of the things they did is they created a gigantic story. I can only presume that part of that is because they wanted to create a video game, and you have to have a you have to have a very large world to create a a, a video game with a storyline that runs through it with a lot of different possibilities and a lot of different play options. So I assume that's why they created such a large world for this thing, and. Because of that, it's not all in this novel. You know, you're not getting the complete Lucasfilm version of Shadows of the Empire just by the novel. If you read the uh, if you read the comic series, the five issue mini that they did, it contains all of the big story beats from the novel. It contains Shizor and the Emperor plotting together. It contains Luke being captured while getting the plans from the Bothan spies. It contains the tryst between Leia and uh, Shizor. It contains you know, the big climactic battle at the end. But there's, it's almost not the same work of fiction outside of that. Outside of briefly hitting those big story beats, a lot of it is Bosk and IG-88 and Zuckus all trying to get Boba Fett trying to get Solo's carbon-frozen uh, slab away from him and turn it in for themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a whole bunch of that. I mean, the, the ending of the comic series is Boba Fett delivering Solo to Jabba's palace. Oh, that's that's a lot different, actually, than, yeah. than how the book ends. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it it covers a lot of that, that bounty hunter underworld that's not anywhere in the book. And again, I, it, there's a... Them, there's a thematic unity. Obviously, they were all kind of working off the same outlines and working off of different parts of them. So the comic book is not just a straight-up adaptation of the series. It is literally a companion to the series. And as as we were going through all this, I just opened um, – I opened the uh, novel here. Maybe I'll just 
do some uh, dinner for geek style editing and you know, <laughs> things around here. But I actually found the passage in the book that that I was talking about where Luke basically bec- he he gets his stripes as a uh, as a Jedi, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, well, fuck it. I mean, we got time. Do it. How, how are you doing on time, by the way? I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm here for the day. So oh, okay. All right. So anyway, this section of the book is. Um, it's page 297 in my paperback. It's a, uh, it's, this section starts off with, Where are we going? Luke asked. Dash said, I know a place we can hide. We can figure out what to do from there. Luke felt a sudden rush of something in him. And I assume he was not thinking about the Princess Leia bikini. <laughs> a kind of powerful knowledge that filled him, made him grin. Of a second, he'd become one with the Force, and he hadn't even tried to do it. It just happened. And so we're going to skip ahead here. It was simply the right thing to do, and it felt as natural as breathing. That's what the Force was, he realized, a natural phenomenon. He'd struggled so hard to attain it, and all it required was that he simply relax and allow it, instead of trying to create it. Simple. Too bad simple and easy didn't mean the same things. Anyway, and so it, it, it goes on from there, and... You know, that's just a very brief little passage there. And but Perry, he just sells the reality of of what it is to touch the force and and use it, be used by it. And he doesn't need 15 fucking pages of didactic dialogue explaining. Well, no, you see, the way the force works is, you know, with these fucking midi chlorine. You know, it's nothing like that. It's 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 there. It works. It is. And that's that's it's no more complicated than. In fact. My contention is the more bullshit you put on the other side of the force and, and in terms of the whys of it and how it works and everything, the more you try to develop a sort of, I guess for lack of a better word, some kind of a Jedi religion, mm-hmm. the more the thing falls apart because it's supposed to be kind of vague to begin with. Yeah. Well, it, it, what's interesting about the passage you read, uh, it was simply the right thing to do and it felt as natural as breathing. That's what the force was, he realized. All of that is really something that should be broken out of that book and handed to every Star Wars writer and and basically tell them, when you write this book, Steve Perry just told you exactly how you should be writing this. Right. Because it's almost a guideline to how to write the Force. Yeah, I would agree with that. Now, the um, actually, and you know what? Since we're sort of on the subject, there's a, there is actually one other writer. And I don't know if you ever read this book, but there is another writer out there who... I shouldn't say they wrote it in, in the same kind of way, but they had an understanding of it that I I was actually really, really friendly to. And after this, we're going to get back on topic with the comics, I promise. But okay. I can't let all this slide without mentioning the Revenge of the Sith novelization, I believe, by uh, Matt Stover. Yeah. Right? And there's a section where Dooku, Anakin, and Obi-Wan sort of have a, a two-on-one type of a confrontation with uh, Dooku, Right. Glad you said confrontation. That almost got slashy again. Yeah, I know. Well, you have to throw in certain words like that just to, yeah. So, um, <laughs> and it, there's a moment where Dooku stretched out with the force, however the fuck that means. Um, but he, and, and he basically tried to describe the way he saw Anakin and Obi-Wan through the force, right? And Anakin was just a he was a he was a tornado he was a hurricane he was chaos incarnate right he's just all over the map, fury. Obi Wan on the other hand was just he was very passive and calm and serene it was just and I and I, I will remember this description for the rest of my life he was a meadow of the force. 
<laughs> and you, you didn't need to, you know, start taking Obi Wan's pulse rate or his respiration, find out if he's, you know, uh, perspiring or not. That's all you yeah. need, and it, it's right there, just a few words: a, a meadow of the Force, and. And but that's not the way that a lot of writers. Anyway, so I mean, we're basically beating, or at least I'm beating the same kind of point over and over again because I've already criticized them for this really hard sci-fi kind of thing. But again, this is when it when it's done well, as Steve Perry did it. You can't help but you know just gush about, or at least I can't help. Yeah. It, so, but anyway. but that is your flaw in going and getting hard sci-fi writers, as we mentioned earlier. To write these books is hard sci-fi. If you in, I don't know if you read hard sci-fi at all. No. Oh, do you? No. Oh, well, I mean, one of the things these authors do, it's all about for them, how could this really happen? How could we take this fantastic thing and make sure that it could really happen? So when you start doing that and you start dealing with something that is at least to a degree somewhat mystical, like the force, it's going to fall down. And, you know, maybe... I am. I maybe. I, you know what? I don't know what the hell's wrong with. I got ADD or something today. But you know, <laughs> that actually kind of brings to mind something that I've noticed about fiction in general lately, right? Yes. I'm not a big expert on um, uh, Total Recall, right? Hmm. Now I do know that it was based on a book. Yes. Right. The movies well, were based on uh, a story. Yeah. Or, or fine, a story. And now in the uh, Arnold. Schwarzenegger version of it, the one directed by Paul Verhoeven, there's a moment where, or there's this section, really, a part of the movie where uh, he goes to uh, Mars. Yeah. And in the, I think in the original story, they talk about going to Mars, but you don't actually really see it. They just, I think they talk about just having been there. Exactly right. And so, and then that's it. And then in the remake, it's actually, at least in terms of the Mars thing, it's a, and this, and keep in mind, I'm just, when it comes to the remake, all I'm doing is just talking about stuff I've heard because there was never a chance in hell I was going to spend money watching <laughs> the fucking, are you out of your mind? No. <laughs> and so, um, but there's a moment where they talk about having, or, or, ba or, or whatever it is that happens, but basically they don't go to Mars. And the way the, the director, whoever, whichever jack-off directed that movie, <laughs> basically said that, you know, that, well, there was no way he could really rationalize a trip to Mars, you know? So, you know, he didn't really see the point of going there just because, you know, the practicalities of going to Mars. I mean, do you understand how just <laughs> unlikely all that shit is? And I'm, and I'm thinking, well, the last movie showed us a, a trip to Mars, and I don't remember anybody throwing a fucking riot over it. In fact, if I'm not terribly mistaken, <laughs> as I remember the structure of that movie, I think that's where we met a three-boobed woman. Yes, and so, you know, look, if there are three boobed women on Mars, dude, fucking take me there. Dude. Sign me up. <laughs> you know, and so, but it, it just kind of felt like this is kind of representative of where we are with entertainment and culture in, at least in America right now, where it's not enough that everything simply is. You can't yeah. have anything uh, in, in terms of entertainment or fiction that's not kind of grounded and i dare i say realistic right all right do you want me to go there i want you to go there okay because i i know you don't like getting off topic but uh well no i i just I, try to keep you happy i don't know how you feel about going off topic so no i i no i just like talking but are you okay. kidding me all That's right what go, i do well, go right ahead i'm in no rush i got all day <laughs> now that's that to me is what's killing the modern superhero comic is this attempt to set it so firmly in the real world and you and I were talking Daredevil a little bit earlier, and 
I, I told you I read straight through Bendis's run, but I didn't tell you that I also read Bob Gale's run leading into that. And that, Bob Gale, that, that's a good little run. Yeah, it's it is, but at the same time, it's all about him being sued for the property damage that he causes as Daredevil. You know, we we've gotten to the point where we we all know that you can't really have a secret identity. And we're okay with it. You don't have to do stories around how it just can't happen and then try and figure out some real-world way it could happen and re-explain around it. Uh, it, it Hyper-reality is absolutely killing. Give me some of those 70s Captain America comics any day of the week or 80s John Byrne Fantastic Four comics any day of the week over these hyper-real, it's got to be able to have really happened with a guy in tights and superpowers type of comics. I, You know what? Um there's an obvious uh, offender here that you and I could could both uh, bash on, but I think Chris Nolan's probably had enough right now. <laughs> I agree, and you know, here's the thing. Um, one of the when it comes to comics, my first well, actually when it comes to to geek stuff, my first love is comics, and when it comes to comics, my first love is Superman. And I've read, I think, a tasteful selection of Silver Age, Bronze Age, and then Burn Age uh, stories. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really hits me, though, about all the, all that pre-crisis stuff, especially the Silver Age, and I actually I talked. I was it Michael Bailey? It was somebody. I talked to somebody about this on one of my shows, and I don't think it's come out yet. But <laughs> at the time that you and I record this, I don't think it's you, come out yet. you have an underground vault of just recorded shows that you've done in advance, don't you? Yes. You. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> And that, that's not a joke, actually. I, if, I, I could stop recording everything tomorrow. My podcast is covered for at least two months. So, <laughs> But um, I was talking to him about it, and I said, now, to me, one of the things that kind of informs not just Superman in the Silver Age, but the Silver Age, is that try not to think of the fact that, the, that these comics are, are, are written for children. That's a completely separate thing all by itself. What mm-hmm. informs the, the stories that are being told is this just fucking crazy imagination behind everything. Now, sometimes yes. the end result of the story is maybe a little bit of a forced conflict or maybe a subplot that doesn't completely follow from the main plot or, or, or whatever else that's going on. But end of the day, those stories are not necessarily about real people living in a real situation. It's about iconic science fairy tale characters in a very fictional world and dc especially embraced that with both arms in the silver age and you cannot tell stories like that these days and I, and and again i'm not i don't mean this from the angle of stories that are written and kind of skewed for such a young audience i mean a story where beppo the super monkey is a day-to-day reality of life yeah all right you cannot do that anymore even in fucking comics and it just kind of makes me wonder what the fuck happened to this country or this world or whatever that we don't have the ability now to dream, to just yeah. to just imagine. You know what the fuck happened? Don't know, don't know. But now it's all going to be grounded in reality. You have to have been able to be there and see it, and you know we roll our eyes if it doesn't conform with reality perfectly when it was never supposed to conform with reality perfectly. It's right. fantasy, right? Yeah, and you know, I mean, um. I don't even think the Silver Age, or Silver Age. I don't think the the Golden Age was quite so grounded as you know the revisionist historians would want us to believe. I mean, you're, when, even whenever you look back at, and again, I'm my first love is Superman, so that's kind of what I tend to rely on. But 
you look back at um uh, at Superman, and that's a very hard science fiction type of uh, type of character, and it basically created a genre unto itself. But Superman, at his most pure, is science fiction, not necessarily realistic crime drama. And the I I, I want to say it's maybe like the first year or so of action comics. It's it, that is very sci-fi oriented stuff. Not so much as it would be just a few years down the line, but yeah. I think right from the start, even when Siegel and Schuster had their absolute way with the character, that's what he was. And he was also wish fulfillment. I think there was a lot of wish fulfillment in there. There was because uh, you know there were there were incidents. I think there was one in the newspaper strip where he, you know the boss isn't treating his workers well, and he basically holds them out of a skyscraper. <laughs> and threatens him if he doesn't treat his people better. So <laughs> there's a there's a little wish fulfillment in there too, yeah. But but yeah, the the fantasy element obviously was a huge part of it. Always has been a huge part of it, and it's why I just uh, Civil War really underscored when it came out because I was always a Marvel guy. I always have had appreciation for Superman, deep appreciation for Superman. But as a whole universe, I really loved Marvel. And when Civil War came out, and I read it, and it, and it was again this attempt to, you know, bring the government in, and we're going to regulate superheroes and all of this. And I just went, you know what, I'm done. It's just this is not, is you know, th- they should be able to get together on a planet and slug it out, and not sit here and deal with the repercussions of a nuclear blast hitting a town and all of it. it just it, it wasn't fun fantasy anymore at that point. Well, and <clears throat> you know what. I'm going to somewhat disagree with you on the, you know, more from the angle that my reading of Marvel, and you know what, I'm on the, I'm actually on the line now with a Marvel guy, so, you know, I, I invite you to correct me if I'm wrong on this, all right? Okay. Actually, you know what, I'm going to start with DC. Basically, DC <laughs> is a universe that is filled with these science fairy tale characters that, that exist very much in a, in a not real world. And... So you have these characters that have these unspeakable power that's granted to them by fate or by magic or in the best of circumstances, what you can say is a sort of fuzzy science. That's DC, right? Yeah. Marvel, and I'm and, and again, I mean Marvel at its most pure, which I consider to be 1960s to 1970s, and it's maybe still kind of true now, but that's when it's truest. Marvel is something that you know, basically, these are meant to be more grounded, more down to earth, and I don't want to. I'm trying not to use the word realistic, but it just kind of feels like maybe that's not a terrible description. These I, sort of realistic characters that have a limited range of powers, and you know, the struggles that they have are basically meant to be the more day-to-day, identifiable struggles that we all have, and they live in something that's a a bit more approximate of the real world. Isn't necessarily yes. the real world itself, but it's closer to it than is DC. Would you agree? I would agree, but it's not that firmly rooted in our world. It was never that firmly rooted. I mean, it was. You're talking about people being turned into superheroes because a bomb blew them up, right. and they didn't get blown into little pieces by the shrapnel, which they would now. Or uh, a, a guy, you know, Spider-Man got his powers by being bitten by a spider. That's just crazy talk. That's just silly. And while it's it is a little more real world than say magic, it's not, you know, it's not Green Lantern for crying out loud. True. But it's it's still not, 
oh my goodness, the fallout of this super battle destroyed an entire town and the government's got to regulate them. And, you know, a lot of the criticism of episode one, bringing it back around to Star Wars, mm -hmm. is this, Thank you. this obsession. You're welcome. This obsession and focus on taxation and trade routes. Well, it, Civil War basically was an obsession and focus on government regulation. Right. And no thanks. I mean, it, 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 there's swashbuckling that should be going on. You know, one of these days, um, I want to do a show at some point about not so much the fact that sec – uh, not Secret War, Civil War – was the jump-the-shark moment for a lot of fans. Not for me. I mean, when I really started you know, kind of reinvesting myself in comics a few years ago, one of the things I started off with was Civil War. And the reason for that was because it seemed like it was just kind of a cool idea for a story, and I enjoy it. That's not mm -hmm. to say I don't I, I don't see the weaknesses of it that you're talking about because I do. It did feel a little bit, and I don't I, I try never to get partisan on the show, but it did kind of feel <laughs> like there was, um, shall we say, political commentary about the situation in America as it existed at the time. And honestly, that was the bigger grabber for me for of of the whole thing. It was so political to me in subtext that it completely turned me off. Right, and so. And whenever writers interject any kind of a political allegory into their stories, I always have a very hard time at, at, after that buying mm -hmm. into the story that they're that they're putting out there because I know at the end of the day they're sharpening their axe one way or the other, and it's all it's all a question of which side is it going to fall down on. And to me, Civil War, it, it it's it, it's weird because it's actually sort of a rare example and and you here you, you are you said you wanted to bring things back on topic and I'm going right back on topic. <laughs> so you tell me which of us is the the better taskmaster here but <laughs> it just kind of felt like you know I was able to I don't know just overlook all of that I, I I guess is maybe the maybe the way to the way to put it that for once the political agenda, it's not that it didn't bother me, or for that matter, it's not that I didn't notice, but for whatever reason, I could overlook it there, whereas in other stories, and I really don't want to get specific about those, because that is <laughs> running the risk of getting too partisan, but um, I I can't. I To me, those yeah. stories are so firmly set in their ideology that you don't come back from that, you know? Yeah, and that... Yeah, it does because that's exactly the reaction I had to Civil War. That's it. And you know what's funny is a guy who was a lifelong Marvel guy who who uh, spent a lot of time buying Superman. I mean, Superman was almost the only DC book I would buy for a long time. Wow. Uh, yeah, and uh, or Action or you know Man of Steel or whatever it was at the time. Right. Um, but I'm a guy who literally went from man, oh man, I'd love my Marvel stuff. To did you check out the latest issue of Legion? I mean, I literally went over to buying that Mark Wade. Was it Barry Kitson? Oh, Legion uh, yes, series that was so good. That. Oh. Yeah, great book. And there was just better stuff happening over there. I, I became very much a guy who enjoys the Flash at that point because they were they were telling stories that were, didn't have all this ridiculous baggage, and they weren't they weren't trying to be hyper real. You know, in relation to that, did you ever um, read the Jeff Johns run on uh, Green Lantern? Uh, I read, yeah, I, I stopped buying comics kind of altogether because our comic shop closed oh. right in the middle of all that. But I was enjoying that when it was going on. Right, well, um, I've never actually talked about this on mic, but what happened was, I want to say it was maybe the eighth or ninth month 
after the new 52 kind of got underway at DC that mm. I just bowed out. You know, I'd, I'd sort of, and, and again, I mean, my first love is Superman, and it felt like this character had become something that was so far removed from what I wanted to see mm-hmm. that I, I just had to check out. And so, and that meant me basically checking out on the entire New 52, including Green Lantern, which I was actually really enjoying at the time. And so what ended up happening was, it was, a, I'd say it was like two or three months ago or something like that. Um, I figured, you know, well, Johns is off the book now, and I always kind of wanted to just kind of see how things, how, how things played out. So I basically finished off the entire New 52 run of all things Green Lantern. I huh. I started reading his pre New Fifty Two run on uh, on Green Lantern. Absolutely fell in love with it, and I don't know if I would go so far as to say he went out with a bang mm-hmm. with uh, Green Lantern, but at the same time, it did feel like it was a worthy, logical conclusion. And I did see just a very, very tiny amount of maybe a little bit of a of a political agenda there. Otherwise, it it it. To me, it was just – it was a good story. It just – it wasn't necessarily up there with, say, the Sinestro Core War or Blackest Night or any of the other ones. It, it, it yeah. felt like it was it was good, just it didn't quite reach that same level. But I still nevertheless recommend it. So if you hadn't – if you haven't really bothered checking it out, whatever my, my opinion counts for, I think you might dig mm-hmm. it. So. I might. Uh, yeah, we, we gave up before Blackest Night. I mean, it, we weren't that far into the run when the comic shop closed around me, and I just went, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm done. <laughs> Jeez, that, that would suck. Yeah, oh, yeah, it was terrible, because it was one of those things where they said, uh, don't forget, next week we're moving to our new location. And I said, okay, I'll be there. And I showed up on Wednesday at the new location, and they weren't there. What the and they happened? never showed back. They just, they the deal fell through, and they didn't have a place to go, and they decided just to pack it up instead. She she called me probably a year and a half later and said, look, I got this, the all these back issues I want to get rid of. Oh, badass. Will you, will you well, she, will you help me put them on eBay? Oh. And so, <laughs> so I, I didn't talk to her much after that, but it's, wow. yeah, she just, they closed up, and that was it, and Brunswick had no had no comic shop anymore. Jeez, that sucks. Yeah. And to this day, well, and the funny thing was, again, I'm bringing it back to Star Wars again. <laughs> I, I, hmm. I, the only thing I continued to buy after I quit buying comics when the comic shop closed was I would buy, I still buy every single Star Wars comic. Mm-hmm. It is just, it's just what I do. I have done it for 30, now 37 years. Shit. And, uh, I kept buying those. And when they announced I guess a week or two ago, Marvel was going to quit selling at the big box stores. They're just going to, any periodicals they sell are just going to be sold in direct market. I went, well, that doesn't really bother me that much because there's no Marvels I buy regularly. I just might occasionally buy one if it, if it looks interesting to me. So I just won't buy one. That's fine. Oh, damn. And then, because oh. <laughs> the only thing I buy is Star Wars. So I'm still good. No, you're and, not. <laughs> Yes, then they sucker punched me. Oh, man. Oh, by the way, we're taking Star Wars back, so you will not be able to buy Star Wars comics in your town in periodical form. Congratulations. So I have two choices. I either join a mail-in service or I go to the bank and get the loan to start a comic shop. Well, all right, look, for whatever my (laughs) experience counts for, what happened was um, 
I thought I would be smart. Jeez. Huh, <laughs> I mean, you know what? I want to be smart about this. You know, is it just me or is that the prelude to winning a Darwin Award? But yeah. What I, I, I thought I would experiment with one of those um, uh, mail order services myself, right? Because, hmm. you know, you do actually get a little bit of a price break. It's not much. But basically, it's enough to offset sales tax is really what it comes down to, right? Gotcha. And so you, you, you get cover price and then a little bit less. So use this uh, service called uh, Heroes Corner, right? And mm-hmm. so I, four months I, – I, over the span of four months consecutively, I placed four orders, right? And at the time, I was big into the Legion of Superheroes – and I'm trying to think, what else was I collecting? A lot of uh, image stuff. Um, Morning Glories was one. I'm uh, walk well, obviously Walking Dead. Mm. Um, and then maybe uh, some stuff from Boom Studios. But basically, I'd kind of moved away from sort of mainstream superhero stuff. And at the time, there was no monthly Daredevil comic for me to collect because he was sort of in between things. So, um, the first month went off perfectly, right? Mm-hmm. The second month, if anything, actually went even better because they – what I realized with this service, right, Heroes Corner, you could you could get like specialty bags and boards that are thicker than than the average kind. And, and so it's – I don't know why. It just I thought it – I still think those are some really cool-looking uh, bags and boards because, you know, they're thick. They're stiff. It's really going to be nice, right? Yeah. Third month is where things went south. Um, the books just fucking never showed up. Right. Whoa. Yeah, my third month order. Now, keep in mind, what I'm talking about is the third month order, right? So whenever I say that, you know, things that there was a fourth month after that, I'd already placed the order by that point because normally, you fuck me over once, that's it. All right. I don't. I'm sure. not gonna. I'm not gonna come back to. You. I'm not gonna give you any more business, right? So that's why it was only four months because by the time this whole thing started, the the chickens started coming home to roost, and what ended up happening was, um, they just got clumped together, right? The third month. Order got clumped uh, together with the fourth month, right? And so I, I called these dumb sons of bitches up, and I was like, look, guys, I understand you want to save on postage. Yay. Not my problem, all right? I spent a certain amount of money, and I got free shipping. Fucking give me my comics, right? Yeah, Anyway, sure. so they call me everything but a white man, right, and all of that. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, anyway, so it, it's just a mess, right? So I've heard nothing but good things about Heroes Corner from other people. My own experience sucks. So whatever you think that's worth. <laughs> I will take that under advisement and I will seek some other option out before I check them out. How's that? All right. Sounds perfect. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I just, I, I, if you were going to use them, I just didn't want you to walk into it blind. All right. That's all. No, I got you. I'm with you. I appreciate that. Cause yeah, I'm going to have to join some kind of service cause we got nothing here. Yeah. Well, and, um, that's the thing. It kind of makes you wonder, though. I mean, what the... Oh, shit. Well, no, we need to get back to it here. Um, okay. <laughs> All right, so we've gone through the book. We've started talking about the comics. Now, were you kind of tapped out on that, or did you have more there? Or I think I'd done most of it. I mean, again, uh, what you'll find with the comic is there's a whole complementary storyline that has to do with the bounty hunters. And in fact, I forgot all about this. There's a big pop-up book that goes along with this. I've got most of my Star Wars books sitting around me, but I didn't. I'm not in my office right now, where all my Star Wars books are. Mm-hmm. But I brought I brought a lot of my Shadow stuff, but I forgot to grab because I had totally forgotten about this book called Battle of the Bounty Hunters, which is a large sized dark horse p- 
pop-up comic. And it's all about uh, Boba Fett trying to deliver Solo to Jabba the Hutt's palace. That sounds so fucking cool. It is really, really neat. It's just a, it's a pop-up. It's a pop-up comic book. And Dark Horse did it, and it's their guys. And uh, I'm, uh, Ryder Wyndham, I think, wrote it. So it's you know it's, it's guys who've got some pedigree, and it's not it's not it's not a graphic novel. You know, it's it's sixteen, eighteen pages at best, and it's a lot of pictures and very little dialogue because it's a pop up book. But it's still very cool. Right, Neat. it's a pop up book. It's a Star Wars freaking pop up book. That's all I need to hear. <laughs> God, that is cool. All right. Yeah, well, it's all right. Have that. That's cool. Yeah. Well. As we've gone through all of this, one of the things that we haven't really talked too much about, and I'm not sure how much we even really can talk about it, um, is the Shadows of the Empire video game. Now, full disclosure, I've never actually played the entire game. Uh, What happened was they released a demo version of it. Because, you know, there was a time when releasing demos of of, uh, video games online was like the fucking, that was the cool thing to do. Mm Mm-hmm. And I yep. guess we're kind of beyond that now, because I honestly can't remember the last time I've seen a demo for Jack shit. But <laughs> at least at the time, they were a little bit more more prolific, right? And so what I yeah. did was uh, installed the Shadows of the Empire video game demo, and that's really um, it's ba- as I recall what what for sure was in there was um, the uh, the uh, speeder battle from um, The Empire Strikes Back. Now that doesn't immediately relate to Shadows of the Empire, except that the uh it's dash rendar and his uh speeder that's the one that you're basically playing as dash rendar during that battle yeah and that's actually it's not a major uh uh point of um of the novel but it 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 is actually mentioned it comes up in conversation between dash and luke yeah you know uh, well i I'll, if i look familiar it's because you probably saw me i was uh i happened to be on hoth at the time whenever the uh, the empire struck and so yeah, I participated in the battle, and I uh, took down a couple speeders and all that stuff. Well, you actually are going through that battle, and you know, basically, I guess to facilitate Luke's conversation, right? And yep. what I remember is, um, this is not the first. God, this is not even close to the first time that a video game has attempted to, I don't basically find a way to video game eyes the uh, the uh, speeder battle on Hoth. This is not sure. the first and I, I assume won't be the last, but No, the the first the ahead. first the first two I remember the Empire Strikes Back arcade game did mm-hmm. if you've ever played that. And then there was the Parker Brothers Atari 2600 Empire Strikes Back game that was nothing but you and a snow speeder trying to blow up walkers. That was it. And every so often, a smart bomb would jump off the walker and chase you around. But you basically, you'd blow one up finally, and then another one would form at the end of the line. Because you got to remember the limited memory of an Atari game. So, right. yeah. <laughs> Well, actually, and that kind of make, makes sense, actually. But um, And I think, and I reserve the right to be wrong on this, because I never played this game either. But uh, Super Empire Strikes Back for the Super Nintendo, I yes. think, had, had some kind of a thing there, too. And I don't think it was... God, we're going back like 20-some years now, but I don't think it was like the movie version where you have to basically wrap the wrap the thing up in a, a tow cable and make it trip. Uh, I was I was thinking at some point you did have to do that on that. Oh, you did? Well, if you played it, I only saw other people play it, so I don't know. But um, Mode 7, scaling and rotation, that's what I remember of that. 
Oh, okay. Well, what <laughs> I can say though is that the, is that the uh, the Walker the Walker battle in the Shadows of the Empire, at least demo, was this was the most successful that I rem- that as far as replicating what you saw in the movie. This was one of the more successful attempts of for that that I that I that I knew about. Yeah. And one of the reasons that it worked for me was because it 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 didn't have the sort of real world physics that are God knows uh, part of a lot of modern video video games. It's just basically there to play it and be fun, you know. Yes. And that that was my real takeaway. And now how representative that is of the rest of the game, this I cannot say. <laughs> but I do know that I had a ball playing the demo because it was, it didn't, it didn't try to be something it wasn't, and but it was able to successfully recapture the the rules and the peril of the movie without actually necessarily the same kind of graphic quality that we might expect today. But it was otherwise, to me, a very enjoyable little thing. Now, I can't remember. Did you ever play that or, or what? Which one? Uh, this was the uh, Empire, or not Empire, the Shadows of the Empire uh, a demo. I, yeah, I didn't. Here's what I did. I had a Nintendo 64. A buddy of mine said, hey, I've got Star Wars. I know you love Star Wars. And he gave me Shadows of the Empire. I said, here, you can borrow this. And then shortly thereafter, I realized that my Nintendo 64 was not really going to amount to anything that I wanted other than a couple of Star Wars games. And I finally gave in and joined the PlayStation rank. So I sold my, I, I got to the point where we were, taking the outrider over the treetops mm-hmm. and then i got rid of my nintendo 64 but i still had the game and then i went to the guy and said here take this game back i don't have a a nintendo anymore and he said well i don't either so keep the game so i actually have a nintendo 64 shadows of the empire cartridge that i've only played marginally oh wow <laughs> hey we'll sell it on ebay you might get two bucks. Ooh. yeah yeah exactly i just uh that's one of my little things is i don't throw star wars things away I don't get rid of Star Wars things unless I've got, you know, seven or eight of them. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that. That's kind of the rule I've got, too, because as I look across my office here, and I've got like a little, it's this very small sort of uh, a bookcase, right? Yeah. And it's got uh, a, a, what I think is a tasteful selection of uh, Star Wars paperbacks, but <laughs> as a sort of bookend, a sort of book stop, I have uh, one of... I think it was like the 1985 or 86 re-release of uh, Star Wars, the first Star Wars. Mm. Yeah. Of the the novelization? No, 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 the VHS. Oh, uh, 86. Or it's, All right. it, it's not the very. Basically, what I'm saying is, it's whatever came second. It's not the very first VHS release. Okay. Smaller, smaller box, not a gigantic box. Basically, form-fitting box. Right. This is how anal I get about this stuff. Uh, Star Wars in red logo on the spine. Uh, yes. Okay, yeah, that's the second release, you're right. right. And, um, you know, basically what happened was, um, you know, for a time, that was the only, that was the only edition of the original, by which I'm saying unaltered, uh, Star Wars that I had. And of course it's in crappy pan and scan and all this stuff, but you know what? Fuck it. At least I have it. Better than nothing, right? And over time, you know, I've since replaced that with... Uh, illegally obtained bootlegs that I bought off of eBay, and then I guess uh-huh. this film wanted a piece of the action, so they, on really shitty DVDs, but they did release the original unaltered trilogy for a while there. Yeah. And so, and that's well, mm-hmm. semi-altered trilogy. I mean, you know, uh, when I first saw Star Wars in theater, it did not say Episode Four. Right, and neither did the one that um, that uh, Lucasfilm released. 
What's that? You mean the... No, it, it didn't have that little subtitle. It just said... Your 86 one didn't? The what? Your 86 tape didn't? No, that no, the 86 tape did. Oh, okay, the, yeah. The, um, the, the DVD that was re-released by a Lucasfilm oh. in like 2006... Basically, as a fanfare starts up, it says "Star Wars" in big in big letters, and then and then follows is is the the scroll. It is a time of. Uh, I didn't of even civil. remember that. Yeah. Wow, I've got that, and I didn't remember it. Yeah. Ah, well, gonna have to go pull it yeah, back out. But because it's Star Wars, and be, and especially since it's not just Star Wars vintage at this point, uh, there's no chance in hell I'm ever gonna sell it. I'm never gonna part with it. I'm never gonna throw it away. <laughs> Nothing. Right. Yeah. And you know that's just kind of the rule that I have. You know, I don't. If it's Star Wars, unless it's just basically burned to a crisp and there's no way to, to salvage it, I yeah, it. That, that's the rule. So anyway, nope, that, I'm with you on that. Yeah. So sorry to barge in on your point like that, but it's no, I I don't think I had a point. That's fine. <laughs> I have, uh, I, and I'm like you though. I mean, I've got a uh, what what VHS are you going to use? But I have the Ewok movies or one of the Ewok movies on VHS from Japan. Because I have a buddy who lived lives over there, and he came over one day and said, "Here." Take this. I'll gladly take it and put it in the collection. <laughs> I don't know that I ever pulled it out of the case, but I've got Ewok Adventure, Caravan of Courage from Japan. Well, fuck it. Whatever. It's cool to have. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah, oh, hey, is, exactly. that, is, that, is that actual VHS, though, or is that beta? Um, no, it's what, what they do is they use a different video encoding format. It's VHS, but it's it's uh, I guess it's probably PAL format, not NTSC. Right. Or it might be NTSC. I don't know. I'll have to go grab it at some point. It's sitting in the garage. I assumed it was PAL, actually, but yeah. Yeah. It might not be, though. Okay. All right. Um, now, the other thing uh, that we had going on here amidst all of these uh, tangents was a discussion about Shadows of the Empire. and one- Oh, was that this show? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, God, it's just you are a fucking content generator, man. But, um, <laughs> I can keep this going all day. But uh, one of the things, though, a major part of the... Um, Whole Shadows of the Empire Chimichanga is is the score by yes. a, by a Joel McNeely, right? And yep. again, Lucasfilm's intention in all this was basically to market this son of a bitch as though it's as though there's a movie coming out, but in fact there is not a movie. But they did everything else up to and including releasing a score. And now to be fair, obviously several of these cues are taken directly from John Williams. Yes. But there are several completely 100% original pieces of music that are included therein. And I got I got to tell you dude, this feels like a Star Wars score to me. It's good. It's very good. Yeah. Uh it's it's you know, I don't mind what Kevin Kiner does for Clone Wars, but when I hear it, I hear TV. Well, and not and, just TV, there's a there's a quality to to what he does. It's it's just it's not the traditional classic type of film score. It, it feels like there's the modern touch to it or, or yes. something. I don't know. There's, it, I don't dislike it, but it's not at the same time, it's not really Star Wars for me either. It just feels very small to me. Uh, and, and this, Shadows of the Empire, and it's Joel McNeely and what, the Royal Scottish Orchestra or something like that. It just sounds big and expansive. And it again, I'm in love with story, and this album helps tell the story. I mean, that's what it does. Right. Right. And, and uh, you know, God, uh, that actually kind of relates to a, a sort of a project um, that that I took upon myself. I'm one of those people that 
unemployment really just does not work for me. <laughs> um, I need to have something to do. And if I don't have something to do, I create something to do. And so, um, you know, uh, there was a point when I needed some sort of a project mm -hmm. to work on, right? And so I hesitate to call this a, an official fan edit of uh, the prequels, but what I've decided to do, you know, George Lucas is, is very fond of saying, well, you know, the, the, the uh, music is, uh, it does such a great job of, uh, of, of uh, communicating the, the, the story, because I make silent movies, you understand, you know, that, kind of, that kind of thing, right? Yes. So I thought, um, all right, motherfucker, let's put that to the test. <laughs> What I did was I took the soundtrack CD for each of the three prequels, and not so much. I'm, again, I don't want to say that I, I don't want to call these an official fan edit, but basically what I did was just took each of the tracks and tried my level best to match them up with the scenes for which they were written. Now, in some cases, what you have are sort of a blending together of two tracks that don't really, apart from the fact that they sound good together, they don't really go together. Yep. And so there's a lot of jumping around in the action and stuff. But one of the things that kind of came out of all of that was just how masterfully John Williams told the story when George Lucas would fucking let him, right? When he mm -hmm. didn't cut this thing to ribbons and completely destroy all of you know, the, the composition and everything that the scenes could have had. And I think maybe the best example of that is actually the, um, the arena battle at the end of Attack of the Clones. That thing is a clusterfuck. It is not the scene that John Williams scored. The way that it is in the movie is not what Williams scored at all. Really? Yeah. There's no way to get the to get the music to, to sync up the way that it was intended to. Because there were so many reshoots. There were so many things that were added in after the scoring. Yeah. Well, maybe not reshoots, but there were so many things that were that were just fucking just moved around. Well, there was the conveyor the whole conveyor belt thing was I mean, before that battle, the whole conveyor belt thing was shot later. Right. And it's and it's only it's included in certain versions of the soundtrack the score for that is. But it's not everything. But I you know, I, it's funny you say that cuz you always hear that about episode 1 how they went back and recut it and it had already been scored, you know, the ending, the final battle, they intercut it differently. Mm -hmm. And that it, apparently Williams blew a gasket because they they recut it, but I'd never heard that about episode 2. Right. Well, all I can tell you is that there were there were times when um the music synced up like butter. You didn't have to do anything. It's it's perfect. And why it's not presented that way in the movie is completely fucking beyond me. But for whatever reason, the music is just completely hacked up or the scene is completely hacked up. And if you try to somewhat restore it, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, right? Yeah. But, and so there are there are uh, cases where you don't have to do anything. You can just and, – and, and, and by the way, whenever I say this, what I'm saying is it's a completely silent movie. The only audio element is the music. And so each movie is about 40 or so minutes long because that's about how much material they wanted to have out there. And so um, it doesn't necessarily do a whole lot in terms of, uh, of uh, telling a story. But at the same time, it perfectly communicates the feeling of each scene. Um, and like I said, I mean, I don't want to call this an official fan edit because there are people out there that really do – for better or for worse, and I'm not going to editorialize on that right now, <laughs> alter these films. And so, I, you know, whether you like fan edits or whether you hate them, that's not what I did. What I did was basically just this little project for myself that only I have ever watched, and that's it. Mm. And so, but one of the things, though, that, that was really driven home, and the whole reason I brought this up to begin with, was because the music really does tell a, tell a, a huge part of the story. 
and I w- and I was absolutely blown away whenever I was rereading parts of the book, and I had uh, the relevant section from um, the score going. How perfectly everything uh, worked in terms of matching up the story. And if you think about that, that's a special brand of of manliness there to be able to take <laughs> a book and then set that to music. Yes. So. And it's funny because I was doing the exact same thing. I was trying my best to now. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to read it as straight through as I wanted to because, I mean, we've you and I have been talking about doing this episode for quite some time. Yes. And a lot of what's held it back, I think, is that I just uh, – this fall I got involved in so many projects. One thing I didn't have time to do was read more than a page or two here or there. And uh, But every time I sat down to read, I would try to get to the appropriate spot. You know, I was reading it on my iPad, which was a different experience for me. And I've got all my entire music collection I've got on my Amazon cloud. So I would pull up that album mm-hmm. on the cloud and just put my headphones into my iPad and read it off my iPad while trying to keep the music flowing with the way the, the book would. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and, and it's it's amazing how well it contributes. Yeah. So um, other than that, um, well, I think I I pretty much said what I need to say, not only about Shadows of the Empire, but apparently about fan edits, <laughs> partisanship, and donkey punches. Yes. So, well, I, um, now is there anything else that you that you, that uh, you, you've got that we haven't really gone through yet? Yeah. The one th- one of the things is I was going to ask you is, and you know what's interesting is we really only briefly touched on the toys, and I guess that would be more of an area for Ryan uh, from Dinner for Geeks to handle because he's magnificent with toys. In fact. He doesn't brag about this a lot, but he actually makes custom Star Wars figures. He's one of those guys. And he is good to the degree that he has had Steve Sansweet buy figures from him that he's made. That is one hell of a pedigree. Yeah. In fact, Sansweet featured one of his customs in one of his books a couple of years ago. You can actually. That's a hell of a pedigree, dude. Yeah. Yeah. So you can look it up and find the custom, and he gives him credit, you know, so and so custom. I think it's a Gargan, you know, the the six breasted. Dancing whore from Jabba's Palace. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's one of those. Yeah, it's one of those he made, and he literally credits made by Ryan Shaw. So, um, now, totally off topic, but since you brought the guy up, is uh, Sansweet still with Lucasfilm, or was he one of the layoffs? No. Or, uh, I, I assume so. Well, no, he was gone before the Disney deal. Oh really? Yeah, he left. He left uh, a few years back, and went to go do that Rancho Obi Wan thing privately. The whole Rancho Obi-Wan thing is just his. I did not know that. Okay, wow. Yeah, he left a, a, several years ago. But uh, he, he was so – at Celebration 6, Ryan actually had me transport uh, Slave Leia that he had made, a custom Slave Leia to Sansweet. And you know, I actually got to text with Steve Sansweet so we could arrange a meeting so I could give him this, this figure. And that guy was so nice, mm-hmm. so just good-natured. And I, I sat and watched him a little bit before I actually met him, and – just how much time and how giving he was with everybody who came, how kind he was to everybody who came by. Uh, I, nothing but nice things to say about Steve Sansweet. But well, I was, um, one of the, yeah, well, actually, well, I, I've heard that. Everyone who's ever met him, unanimously, they always say, you know, Steve, Steve Sansweet is everything you heard about. But the other thing I've heard, though, is that maybe even more than Rick McCallum, Steve Sansweet, especially towards the end, he was just burnt the fuck out. <laughs> um, he was, that may be and whether that's Lucasfilm corporate politics or whatever else but I mean I couldn't say but the common I guess thread through all of the stories that I heard uh, from people who met him his last few years um, at a 
I don't know, maybe it was circa 2006, 2007, around there. Yeah, because... He wanted to find the tallest building he, he, he possibly could and then jump off it. Oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah, because by 2000... When was Celebration 6? 2010? Was it that long ago? No, it was 2012. 2012. Mm-hmm. By then, he had already left, had been gone for a little while, had set up Rancho Obi-Wan and was there in that capacity and not with the Lucasfilm capacity. So he, he's been gone a few years. But that's terrible to hear because that's a guy who, of anybody, he does not deserve it. Right. right. He doesn't and, deserve that kind of treatment. And I'm being a little bit hyperbolic whenever I say that. I mean, he actually was sure. like on Suicide Watch or something. I'm just He was he kind of had <laughs> enough, really, is what yeah. it came down to. So. That's a shame, too, because he's here you are, and think about it. Think about how many people envy him his position, because here he is who loves Star Wars. He's going into and he basically Star Wars is his job, mm-hmm. and then you get sick of it. What is there to life when the one thing you love the most you're sick of? And that's actually one thing that would – if I – you know, I remember thinking, you know, how cool it would be to, like – I don't know, just do anything, I guess, like cut negatives on Star Wars, right? Mm. Or not Star Wars, Smallville. Um, or to work at DC and be, you know, the coffee boy that, you know, helps all of the Superman staff, you know, or something like that, even if that's the most I could do. But then I thought, you know what, you're going to see a pretty freaking ugly side of the business if you're there in all the meetings behind closed doors and you find out what, what those people really say. Yep. Yeesh, I don't know. I mean, because I don't know if Steve Sansweet was necessarily on a first name basis with George Lucas, who, by the way, I have no gripe with about anything. But no. they say that George could be a little bit outspoken about certain things, and you know, pretty much, at least on certain key things, it was kind of his way or the highway. Uh, well, it's yeah, it's his ship. I mean, maybe there are better managerial styles, but it is it's his baby. <laughs> well, and it's just it's it's one of those things that if you know if what if your passion becomes your job rather than your job your passion, this is one of the things that I think could kind of be a side effect, and this has jack shit to do with Shadows of the Empire. So okay, now, <laughs> as two Shadows of the Empire. Now we we started talking about the toys. Now I never, excuse me, never actually owned any of them. It's not to say I didn't want them or I didn't like them. They just kind of came out at the wrong time. Yeah, for me, I was um, think I, I think I was a uh, sophomore in high school. Oh, you were too cool. Well, that and you know, I mean, basically, and I cannot believe I did this. God, I was an idiot. But I ended up junking my 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 uh, action figures. Right? You what? Yeah. Uh, you know, like some people will just put them in a box and toss them up in the attic. Yes, I do know about that. Yes, I'm that I guy. Didn't. I was an idiot. Uh, I junked them, and we're talking about the Kenner, uh, the Kenner, not the Batman Returns line, but the animated series line. No, this was oh. it was sort of a kind of a movie tie-in, but not really. Basically, Toy Biz had the license to make the official uh, the uh, Batman from the first Tim Burton movie, the to- yeah. the toys for that. Yep, they had the license. I want to say for like a year or something like that, and then whatever happened, Kenner picked up. The uh, picked up the deal, right? Too late in the game to really market a new Batman line since Toy Biz had already kind of put out that really shitty one. So they didn't actually call this the official Batman uh, movie tie-in line, but I think that's kind of what it was supposed to be. And so there was a Batcave, there was a Batmobile, there was all this other shit, right? Well, I had the Batmobile from that line gone. The Batmobile uh. from that line gone. 
Bat helicopter, gone. All right, um, everything, gone. I had the, the Bat Cave from Batman Returns, their Batman Returns line, gone. Ah. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Fucking idiot. But, you know, at the same time, <laughs> I didn't want to bring my girlfriend over because I was actually dating a little bit at the time. Oh, man. Freshman, and I didn't want to bring my girlfriend, you know, into my bedroom and, hey, look at my toys, you know. And so, <laughs> fucking idiot. You know, and, like, the thing is, I'm, like, dating somebody now. Mm-hmm. Um, She's got her own collection of toys, you know. Yes. So, you know, it's like, where were you when I was in high school, lady? <laughs> Yeah, you because know, well, actually, I know where she was. She was actually a lot younger than me at the time. Well, she's still <laughs> she younger at than the me. time, <laughs> right? But I mean, like, this would have been like criminally younger than me. Ah, yes. Had we dated back then, so like, I would have gone to, I would have gone to jail. I mean, she was like four years younger than me, which now mm. it doesn't mean anything. Nope. When and when you're younger, ninety, it really won't mean anything. Yeah, but when you're when when you're fifteen and she's eleven. Yeah, that's creepy. Yeah. So yeah. I'm actually glad that we didn't know each other back then. Yeah, yeah, we're going places I don't feel like going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, you don't like women? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, I, I, uh, I happen to, I happen to have, uh, I, I married the girl that I was, I prayed I could marry, to tell you the truth. So, yeah. That's cool. And, yeah, she was, I knew her in high school, and we never dated, but good Lord, I was hot for her. And uh, then we went off to college separate ways, and then she we kind of dated a little bit and then went off our separate ways again. And I said, Hey, do me a favor. Don't go get married. Cause I might, you know, I might be back. She says, I promise I won't. And then she went and got married and <laughs> Damn. Damn. <laughs> long story short. And, uh, I said, okay, well that's it. We got to write that off, but I hate it because that's, that's where I wanted to be. And then all of a sudden she showed up one day and said, all right, never mind. Let's do this again. <laughs> said, okay. I'm good with that. But anyway, uh, if we've love fested on shadows of the empire. Yes, we have. If there is a weak spot for the book, for you, what is it? Um, honestly, it's Dash Rendar. Um, <laughs> and basically what it comes down to is this. I mean, you talk about a guy who's too cool for school. Um, yes. Now, he does have a little bit of comeuppance in the book, sort of. But it later turns out, well, not really, because he couldn't. And I forget what the specifics were, but basically there was a save he was trying to pull off. Yep. And through no fault of his, there was no human way to ever to ever pull this off. And so at first he thought that this was a personal failure. After he apparently died, Luke found out, well, it's not really his fault. You know, you could have all the Jedi you want, all the all the force mojo you want. Nobody could have nobody could have done it for whatever reason. This save simply was not possible. Yeah. And so it just kind of felt like. If, if, if it's a girl, if it's a female character, what they call him is a Mary Sue. And I think if it's a male, what they call him is a Gary Stew. And <laughs> okay. that's kind of what Dash Rindar is in this. He's the guy that that's without flaw. Everything he does is awesome. He's got a 10-foot-long dick. You know, everything. And, you know, after a while... Look, it's not that I dislike the character, but it's just... It, it kind of feels like... It kind of feels like... You know what? Fuck, fuck it. I, I can actually think of a very good way to put it. Dash Rendar in this book is Batman. Because everything that he does is perfect. And even when he screws up, there was no way to ever have it done right. So it's not even his fault. It's Batman. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. Other than that, that... And that's not worth it. You know... I guess what I'm saying is that's not that doesn't put me off the book. I'm just saying that there are circumstances where that character kind of grates on my nerves a little bit. But otherwise... That's a, yeah. That's nitpicking. That's the best I can do. 
Now, uh, let me read you from my I, – I take very sketchy notes and then try to flesh them out verbally while I'm doing the program itself. Uh, I do improv. <laughs> Here's my note. Here's my entire note on the weak spot of the book. You ready? Quote word for word. Ready. If there's a weak spot in the book for me, it's Dash Rendar. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right why why is that <laughs> um a lot of what you say coupled with the fact that he is so much of a solo analog mm-hmm. there's there's they're too similar there's too much of it it's let's have an, an adventure with the big three but we don't have the big three so let's make an extra let's create a fake big three that we can then dispose of at the end of this and not have to worry about again right and that's a little off-putting when you stop to think about it. Uh, but there there are moments when it's okay and it flies through and you're fine. But e- even down to a ship, which is very strongly suggestive of the Millennium Falcon. Right. It's just a little too much. It's kind of – if you want to delve into race and, and class issues in Star Wars, one of the things that drives me crazy about Star Wars expanded universe stuff in general is this 90s Clintonian – sense of race and and uh, class issues that was injected into Star Wars all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's all the, well, the Emperor would never have an alien assistant in there. He'd never ri- uh, promote an alien through the ranks. And that's done because, well, in the films, we never see any aliens on the bridge of the Star Destroyers. Well, in Star Wars, you never see any aliens anywhere right. except in the cantina. You know, every rebel in the Star Wars in the first film, every single rebel is also human. And in Empire Strikes Back, every single rebel is human. It's not until we get to Jedi that all of a sudden, okay, now we can afford to put some aliens in the rebellion. So I'm not a fan of that. But the other thing of that I'm not a fan of is the, this 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 weird thing where we we don't we resist racial stereotypes and we resist cultural stereotypes, but yet we reinforce them in our work. Every Karelian is a hot shot. Flyer, pilot, gambler. Right. Every Rodian, like Greedo, is a bounty hunter. How does a society even rise up if every Rodian is a bounty hunter? <laughs> <laughs> How can they have a culture if they are all spend all their time bounty hunting? How did right. they achieve? And and again with Corellia, how did they? How did anything ever happen if they're all hotshot pilot gamblers? Right. Yeah. Who's digging the ditches? Yeah. So. It, Again, that's just one of those things that tweaks me about Dash Rendar. If there's a criticism of the book, that's what it would be. Well, and you know what? Like the thing, you know, when it comes to like his solo isms, I I could have probably accepted all of that until they actually made him a Karelian. I mean, even if he'd been from freaking Mars, I could <laughs> that that would have worked with me. Yeah, well, there's this planet out there. We think it's called Mars, and I just fucking uh, blah, 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 over to uh, over to here. So here I am. <laughs> But the fact that it had to be Corellia, I don't know. That, as you say, that was the thing that, you know, yeah, so. Well, we're in lockstep on that one for sure. Yeah, no, we're not. But okay. Uh, <laughs> all right, so I'm, I think I'm pretty much tapped out on Shadows of the Empire. So um, actually, before we start saying our goodbyes and everything, I my molars are swimming. Can you hold the line just a minute? Yeah, <laughs> do it. Now, the question is, will this all be left in? in kind of an analog to the five-minute smoke break during the Man of Steel commentary? Or will this all be excised as something else? I'll tell you what. If it does get left in, let me tell you the kind of Shadows of the Empire 
oeuvre, so to speak, that is out there. There's the novel by Steve Perry. There's the omnibus, which is what you might as well get it in now, because you can get the trade paperbacks, but why not get everything? And that's from Dark Horse, and that contains the Shadows of the Empire miniseries. It has Mara Jade by the Emperor's Hand miniseries. It has the Shadows of the Empire Evolution miniseries in it as well, and some other stuff. There's a children's novel by Christopher Golden based on the novel. And there's The Secrets of Shadows of the Empire by Mark Katavaz. And then, of course, there's Battle of the Bounty Hunters, the pop-up comic book, which is very, very neat. Although, a little slim on story. I'll say that. Magnus, are you back? That's some leak. That's some titanic leak that's being taken. Are there any other things? Soundtrack album by Joel McNeely, who worked a lot on Young Indiana Jones. And the video games. And the action figures, of course, and the playsets and the toys. Can't think of anything else. You missed something. What did I miss? I don't know. I just wanted to say that. Um, <laughs> I just figured I'd go I'd go listing through the... I didn't know if this was going to be like the smoke break, where it would just be like moments of minutes of silence. <laughs> You know, people have busted my balls. <laughs> Dude, I was nicking like you wouldn't believe, man. I mean, <laughs> I mean come on. Look, I've given an hour and 20 minutes to you people, nonstop. <laughs> you, can, you, you can spare me five minutes. I thought it was the most Andy Kaufman-esque thing I'd heard in a podcast. <laughs> I thought it was beautiful. <laughs> but I know that some others didn't quite get it. No, I was just nicking and I needed to go to... Uh, five minutes, go outside, have a smoke, and really, that's that's all there was to it. There's no deeper statement to it. Uh, the pause button. The pause button. Anything? Uh, <laughs> no. Well, I mean, it's just trying to get everything synced up exactly perfectly like it was. Yeah. I don't know. It just it felt like I, I'd never done a commentary before. It felt like maybe I was going to be tempting fate, you know, if I screwed around with it too much. I don't know. So that's... Gotcha. So, well, um, as I say, though, I'm, I think I'm pretty much uh, uh, spent when it comes to Shadows of the Empire. So if, unless you have something else, uh, why don't you uh, tell everybody where they can find you? Uh, you can find me on Dinner for Geeks at uh, true, 2TrueFreaks.com every single week. And uh, if you go to DinnerForGeeks.com, it will do nothing but route you right back to 2TrueFreaks.com. So either way, that's where you're going to find us. And, of course, if you want to find me blathering on every single morning for three hours you can usually find a link to the uh the video feed of my morning show straight talk at 1440 wgig on facebook or you can find the audio stream at 1440 wgig.net how's that sounds perfect all right well um scott first off i just i'd like to thank you very much for uh for, for agreeing to join me in the first place and then second for yeah. providing with so much uh, content this stuff this is going to be great. Um, this uh, there's uh, going to be a lot of here to to chew on and choose from and all that. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for letting me into your kingdom, sir. Hey, always a pleasure. And um, as to the rest of you, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. And clear.
gathered together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth, are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind. It's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. 
Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. The chickens started coming home to roost. I didn't. I mean, it was already. I'd already spent the money. You know, I couldn't this, get it back. Uh, are you quoting your pastor when you say that? What do you mean? The America's chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah, no. I, like I said, we're not getting a partisan here in, <laughs> in this show. America's chickens, it's coming home to roost. Roost. <laughs> oh God, I gotta clip that out. There's no way. I can. Chickens.